Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 20th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. Buzz Aldrin is an American icon. The West Point graduate piloted the lunar module on Apollo 11 and became the second human being to walk on the moon. He was in New York City to promote the new animated movie Fly Me to the Moon, in which he plays himself. We talked about an article he wrote for the March 2000 issue of Scientific American called A Bus Between the Planets, about how gravity-assist trajectories between Earth and Mars could greatly reduce the cost of getting people and equipment between the planets. We also talk about the Constellation program, which will replace the space shuttle and is supposed to return us to the moon by 2020. We spoke in the lobby of the Gramercy Hotel in Manhattan. That's why you hear music in the background. Before I even had a chance to ask him a question, he started to talk about solar power articles he'd seen in Scientific American. You've had some things recently on uh, terrestrial solar power. Solar oh, yes, energy. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I've been in touch with some of the, the, the people who uh, represented that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I'm, I, though I'm not sure that whether there has appeared there uh, a, a review of a recent study on uh, space-based solar. I, I'm trying to bring those two efforts together to complement each other. Uh, so they're not saying, well, we can do this and they can't do that or they're going to cost more, going to take longer to do this, so right. let's do this now. Uh, the, the, the two are working together in the same technology, the same source of energy, Absolutely. and the, the same, sort of the same net result of, of, of hel- helping. What do you, what get, do you think the, uh, the chances are of having a large-scale solar supply of energy for this country in the next 30 years. Oh, 30 years? I think it's pretty pretty good. Uh, it's going to take a persistence, and, and of course you're going to tread on the turf of somebody else somewhere along the line, uh, and it's maybe going to take some novel uh, financing that uh, I've, I've had some suggestions of some people who think uh, that, that, that it really can be done without a whole lot of government... Uh, uh, investing in long range in the future, that, that we can do this through advanced purchase type uh, uh, arrangements and agreements that then can indicate a, uh, a willingness for the end product and then you can get people to invest up front in the development that leads toward that, something like that. Uh, it's ironic. I, I thought we were going to talk about the moon. We're talking about the sun. <laughs> no. well, yeah, we can talk about the moon all we want. Uh, it, it's not a great source of energy. No, no. Uh, well, some people think helium-3 is a, oh. is a great material. Uh, uh, I don't think we have the appropriate reactor yet to say, oh, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to mine helium-3 and bring it back. Uh, yeah, if you can demonstrate, you can really use it. I was shocked to, uh, to realize today because I remember reading your article for us uh, when it first came in, and I was shocked to see that it was published in 2000. I thought if you had asked me, I would have said three or four years ago. But you you did the article for us on uh, gravity assist trajectories in 2000 with uh, James Oberg, and I well, just was wondering if you wanted to say anything about that. Well, sure. That has been significantly evolved favorably by uh, a professor and a couple of graduate students at uh, Purdue. And uh, uh, one of them in particular is now uh, a PhD uh, at 
JPL, and and he and I have uh, shared some evolution of uh, of the cycling spaceship concept, and it has uh, been further evolved in my mind uh, with the idea of growing permanence at Mars, and, and how when you're concentrating on building people up there, uh, it leads to an architecture of uh, spacecraft concepts of delivery that, that is much simpler, maybe, than we would have thought about before. You don't have to put so much emphasis on bringing people back, because they're going to stay there. Right. Once we build up the confidence uh, that, that it's not going to all fall apart. Right, right. A lot of people might not know you have a doctorate from MIT. Yeah. And the, the subject of your thesis was guidance techniques for manned orbital rendezvous. Right. Did, did any of the specific things that you worked on in your thesis wind up coming into play when you were, when you were actually doing it? Absolutely. Yeah, those, those uh, well, I, uh, I had a concept, a, a method of approach, and there were two other uh, competing methods, and uh, essentially the one that, that I suggested was selected as the model for the Gemini program. And, and then I worked with other mission control people in, in setting up the ways uh, of, of arriving at the good initial conditions to then be able to have that crew monitoring uh, of what was happening so that if something wasn't working, a computer, a platform, inertial platform, or a radar, uh, that the crew could continue on with the good chance of uh, of completing the rendezvous, uh, and this it turned out by visual. Yes, that was involved. Uh, it used whatever was available uh, to come up with a solution other than a computer-generated solution. Uh, so you used what was available within the spacecraft to, to monitor and make sure that it was appropriate. And uh, of course, the radar failed intermittently on Gemini 12, and we had to use the backup-generated solutions. Of course, the ground was telling us what to do, and uh, we chose to use our calculated ones because the computer w just wasn't geared to do that without continuous solutions. Oh, so you're up there saying, don't worry, I, I invented this stuff. That's right. We, we knew how to do it. And then it was uh, heartening to see that Apollo moved in the same direction to, to use basically uh, a very similar thing because the crew was familiar and confident uh, with that and and it's still essentially uh, what's being done today but now we have multiple computers and uh, uh, you don't want to spend a tedious amount of time with crew training on something that you have a high confidence of uh, of happening now th this is all earth orbit rendezvous uh, if things aren't going right at the moon and you require a rendezvous to come back home, you're going to use everything available sure. to, to make sure it's working right. So we, we have very limited time, but I wanted yeah. to ask you about your opinions about the Constellation system. I know based on some press yeah. reports, you have some serious feelings about that. Well, the, the uh, concept, the vision of, for space exploration, as enunciated by the president, which consists of uh, uh, adhering to the accident board, which says don't fly the shuttle beyond 2010, and, and in that time complete as much of the space station as you can, and then move on to exploration. Now, uh, we can't just leave the space station 
up to the Russians or something. And we'd like to have a transportation system that's affordable, attractive, and marketable that goes to low Earth orbit in addition to going to the moon in the appropriate way. I think we can do that and should be doing that and maybe should have put more emphasis on that system rather than just cargo delivery to the station. American people want to see our astronauts delivered there and we don't have to uh, ride with the uh, uh, with the Russians. The Europeans deliver cargo, the Japanese can deliver cargo, and we can deliver people if we make the right choices. And it can really add to our future because we've missed having that in the past. Uh, setbacks with the shuttle have resulted in our sitting on the ground. Until the shuttle was ready, we almost went almost six years without Americans flying. Uh, and that's incompatible with the uh, a nation that landed six times out of six when we tried to uh, at the moon. I think that uh, the, the vision is correct, and uh, there appear to be some questions by a number of people at this stage that we don't have the redundancy. And since there is that question, I think because we have uh, a new administration coming in that wants to accept a re-evaluated status of where we stand now. If I were coming in as president and there were some concerns, I would want a re-evaluation before uh, committing my new administration to something that, that had been put in motion uh, to satisfy a vision, but the implementation may have some uh, evolving question marks. That's just a good systems analysis yeah. approach. It may be that one of my options that I think needs to be really uh, studied by an independent uh, group of people who are not biased one way or the other by contracts, by uh, agendas, by uh, the, the, the course that they're supporting contractually or business-wise or political reasons. Um, and, and I'm finding that it looks like we're going to have to take not, not just established think tanks because it looks like they don't want to incur the wrath of objecting to something that's in motion. They don't want to gamble on something that's uh, and, and endorse something that might be uh, decided by somebody else and then to be out of favor. Uh, and that's a little regrettable, but I think I have a solution to that, and that's uh, advocacy groups combined with retired people and studies that have been done, uh, I think are fully adequate to, to make general options available. And one option clearly is just do exactly what we set out to do, what we've been doing. That is certainly one. Another one is to defer exploration uh, a good while and concentrate just on the space station. It's sort of another uh, swing. Now, some of the things that we would do to do that, uh, combined with uh, the, the stay the course as we analyze, uh, offer ways that maybe uh, an in-between solution one of those pathways would be to, to move toward uh, uh, reusable components with an idea toward uh, increased reliability and uh, increased flight rate that, that would support solar power satellites and uh, adventure travel into space where you don't just take a few people when you can, you, you begin to make a business out of it one way or another. And uh, those things generate uh, additional enthusiasm, and all of them point toward one objective that's in my mind, and that's U.S. leadership 
in the field of advanced space activities and advanced inspirational uh, movement of, of humans uh, outward throughout our solar system and robotically beyond the solar system. Sounds good. I, I know you're in a hurry. Uh, tell us about the movie real quick. Uh, well, I think it's a very satisfied, well, far more than satisfactory combination uh, of the, the historical education of young people who will just, uh, while they're watching a, a very interesting, humorous uh, portrayal of human characteristics given to non-intelligent creatures like flies. Uh, and it's, a, it's about flies that are stowaways on, yeah, the, on and, the mission. Yeah, yeah, and, and they get inspired to do that by seeking adventure, by listening to a grandparent describe uh, adventures that he was seeking in the past, trying to fly in, uh, in, a, in a mercury capsule and being frustrated at the last minute, <laughs> and, and <laughs> then being an inspiration to, to the young kids. Then they work in teamwork to, to help each other carry out something. Uh, there was three flies uh, who worked together, uh, who were different characteristics, different personalities. The crew of Apollo 11 was three guys working in teamwork, three different personalities, uh, and, and we combined, worked together as a very effective team and carried out our mission. Let me finish by asking you something I've, I've always wanted to know. And I, and I saw a quote from you that sort of indicates that what the answer might be. Were you so busy with mission protocol on the moon that you had no time to just sort of take a deep breath. What was the actual experience of being up there? Did you have any time to just say, this is unbelievable? Well, there was no way to recreate or really anticipate the visual that we were given. Not that it was surprising, but it was understandable. Uh, but you just couldn't project ahead that, that you were going to see unusual things like putting your foot down and, and the dust goes out and, and kind of lands in a different way. If things behave differently up there. Uh, and then you, you, you try and confirm uh, how mobile a person can be and what is the best way of moving around. The quote that I saw was you saying that when, when you got back to Earth and the, all the hoopla and, you, and you, you said to Neil Armstrong, we missed it. Uh, what I was referring to was the enthusiasm that I saw people have here on Earth seeing that we landed successfully. Uh, we, we couldn't share in that because we were sort of uh, indisposed. For a print interview with Aldrin, see the August 13th article on our website called The Latest Buzz, Aldrin Flies to the Moon Again. It's at snipurl.com slash Aldrin. Aldrin's March 2000 Scientific American article, A Bus Between the Planets, is available at siamdigital.com. And the movie's website is www.flymetothemoonthemovie.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, chewing gum after colon surgery enhances the recovery of intestinal function. Story two, from good news about gum to a nice note about chocolate, naturally occurring compounds in cocoa may improve brain function. Story three, elderly survivors of the 1918 flu pandemic still have active antibodies to the virus. 
and story four, researchers have shown that only certain mammals can develop the capacity to recognize themselves in a mirror. Time's up. Story one is true. Turns out that one of the best things you can do after surgery to remove part of the colon is chew gum. According to a study in the August issue of Archives of Surgery, gum chewing fools the body into thinking you're eating. You get increased saliva production and nerve stimulation in the digestive system, which triggers the release of hormones that increase secretions from the pancreas, all of which gets the intestine back up to speed sooner. Story two is true. Cocoa compounds look like they're good for brain function. Cocoflavanols appear to increase blood flow to the brain. In the long term, that could help with cognition. Researchers also hope to develop the compounds into possible treatments to help the brain recover from dementia and stroke. The research appeared in the journal Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment, and was supported by the Mars Company. In an example of enlightened self-interest, Mars is also supporting the sequencing of the cocoa genome. And story three is true: extremely elderly survivors of the Spanish flu epidemic that killed tens of millions of people 90 years ago still have working antibodies to the virus. Injecting the antibodies into mice protected the animals from the virus. The study appeared in the journal Nature. Analyzing the antibodies could help in the development of treatments if a strain similar to the 1918 one comes along again. For more, listen to the August 19th edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story four about certain mammals being the only animals that can recognize themselves in mirrors is totally bogus. Only great apes, including us, dolphins, and elephants, had previously been shown to be able to recognize themselves in mirrors. Your cat thinks that mirror image is another cat, but new research finds that magpies that look in a mirror realize that they're looking at themselves. The work appeared in the journal Public Library of Science Biology. Birds have very different brains than mammals do. The neocortex is thought to be crucial for self-recognition in mammals, but the magpie finding shows that self-recognition can occur in species that don't even have a neocortex, which means that higher cognitive skills can develop independently along separate evolutionary lines. You try recognizing yourself without a neocortex, smart guy. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit siam.com to check out our special package of articles on privacy and online security. The August 18th edition of the Daily Podcast features an interview with siam.com's Larry Greenmeyer about our special package on privacy. Here's a clip. Since social networking sites have become so popular, people are readily filling in these profiles with all kinds of information about themselves. Then they, you know, you do it without realizing it. You know, you're putting information about your pet and your family and what you did, what you like to do, your hobbies. There are people out there who can piece together the puzzle and figure out how to answer questions such as the last time you you forgot your password and your bank said what's your pet's name or what what's your favorite movie and and you sign up you set those things up when you sign up for those accounts so you know the answer thinking that most other people wouldn't but that's not necessarily the case that's part of the special package on privacy and online security up at siam.com for science talk the weekly podcast of scientific american i'm steve mursky thanks for clicking on us Thank you.